Welcome to the drdavidmarlin.com Stable Science Podcast. I'm Dr. David Marlin, and along with a great team of experts, I'm helping horse owners and riders achieve optimal performance for their much-loved horses. In these podcasts, we will discuss science-led research, technology, information, and advice to help you care for your horses so they may live healthier, happier, and longer lives. To support the podcast and all our research and science for horses, go to our website, www.drdavidmarlin.com, and to learn more about what we do and the hot topics under discussion, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So um, I'm here at Mayfield School near Tunbridge Wells at the invitation of one of our members to give a talk to uh, some of the students, some of the girls and their parents. So I'm really looking forward to that. Thank you. I hope you don't mind if I sit down, I've been on my feet all day. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so how I got involved with what I've been doing at the Olympics and with the British team really started uh, when I went back from racing to work at the Animal Health Trust again to head up a unit looking at respiratory and cardiovascular health in horses. <clears throat> and we had a meeting one day, uh, a, a departmental meeting, and the head of the department said, oh, we've got this, uh, we've got this letter from the FEI, and this was in 1990, uh, let's have a think, of, it was been 1992. So it was late in 1992, Christmas sort of 1992. And nobody wanted to take this letter and do it. And they said, well, somebody's got to do it. And I was really, really hungry, said, oh, I'll do it. And I took the letter, I didn't even look at it for about 10 days. And when I looked at it, it was a letter from the FEI asking for ideas about how we would solve the problem of horses competing in hot weather, because at the Barcelona Olympic Games in 1992, a lot of horses suffered because of the heat. So a lot of horses collapsed on the cross country. Um, a lot of horses finished very, very hot. They finished, because the thermometers they were using, they went off the scale. They couldn't measure how hot these horses actually were. So that was quite a, a problem because a lot of really negative images about equestrian went around the world and at that stage the IOC wanted to drop equestrian from the Olympic Games. So you probably all know I'm sure that the, the disciplines that are in the Olympics are dressage and show jumping then, and then of course eventing which is dressage, show jumping and cross country. Um, some of you may also know that 
although there are horses that have been used in modern pentathlon, modern pentathlon is absolutely nothing to do with equestrian. So we, we have no control at all over what happens in modern pentathlon. And of course, modern pentathlon have actually behaved probably so badly now that they'll never be able to have horses. This will be the last Olympics they'll be allowed to use horses and then they're going to move to an obstacle course. But going back to 1992, Barcelona, it was very hot and dry during the cross country. And the wisdom at the time was, if you had to compete in the heat, what you should do is avoid the heat in your training. Now, we do something very different now, um, which is called acclimatization, getting used to the heat. But in 1992, everyone was riding early in the morning to avoid the heat, but then having to cope with the heat of the middle of the day, because that's when it was scheduled to go out so that it could go all around the world, the cross country. So people were very worried because in Barcelona was hot and dry, but Atlanta, where the next Olympics were going to be, is at that time of year, July, August, is hot and humid. And have any of you been somewhere, let's see, have you been to Hong Kong in the summer? Have you been to Japan in the summer? Have you been anywhere hot? Have you been to the south of America in the summer? Florida in the summer? Anyone been anywhere hot and humid? <laughs> yes, thank you, gentlemen up there. <laughs> um, the difference is if you go somewhere that's hot and probably all your, your parents are very kind to you because they take you to places which are hot and dry which is nice if you go to hot and humid places it's not quite so nice in hot and humid if we were in hong kong now i'd be literally just dripping in sweat because because of the humidity you find it very hard to control your body temperature when it's hot and humid so i mean what let me ask you in any, any of the students, have you all done biology? Okay, how do we control our body temperature when we get too hot? What do we do? What, what does our bodies do? Sweat, did somebody say? Hope somebody said sweat. So we sweat. Now, if you imagine, we can't compare um, you with a horse, because a horse is about 10 times bigger than any of you. So it would be unfair to say, well, you can sweat a pint or a litre an hour and a horse can sweat 30 litres an hour. That's not a very fair comparison, is it? Because a horse is so much bigger. But what we can do is say, if we were to take, let's say a metre squared of your skin and a metre squared of a horse's skin and compare how fast we can sweat versus what a horse can do. A horse can sweat nearly four times as fast as we can, even accounting for the fact that the horse is seven, eight times bigger than us. So there's no other animal that can sweat faster than a horse. But do you know what happens when it's very hot and humid to, to sweat? How do, how, what has to happen to sweat to cool you down? sort of what what's the what would be the process evaporation. evaporation so unless sweat can evaporate sweat dripping off you doesn't really cool you down it's only when it evaporates that it makes your skin cool so in a hot dry environment like the desert half the time if it's really hot and dry maybe a little bit windy you won't even realize you're sweating because as soon as the sweat appears it evaporates off but it's cooling you down if you go to a hot, humid environment, you still sweat, but the sweat doesn't evaporate as fast and therefore it doesn't cool you down as much. Now, so horses can sweat very fast, but it doesn't help them too much the, the more humid it is. The horse has got another problem. If you, let's think, if you were living in, uh, the Antarctic or the Arctic, would you prefer to be a tiny mouse or would you prefer to be a big polar bear? Who says mouse? Who says polar bear? Okay, any idea why it's better to be a polar bear? Surface area. So if you're big, you're actually 
find it harder to get rid of heat. So if you're small, you lose heat much more quickly because of the, it's, it's to do with the, the relationship between how big you are and how much surface you've got. So even though a horse is seven or eight times bigger than you, it's only got about two and a half times as much surface area. So horses struggle to get rid of heat, part of their coping mechanism to have this high sweating rate. Horses also have another problem as well. So when you are exercising, you produce heat in your muscles. Now, the amount of heat you produce for every unit of energy you use up in your muscles to make your muscles move, four times as much is released as heat because muscles actually aren't very efficient. It's a bit like car engines. Car engines get hot because they they're not 100% efficient at turning the fuel into movement. So the horse is producing all this heat. The amount of heat they produce is related to how much oxygen they use. And if I said, most, is there any long distance runners here? Anyone who's really good at long distance running? Okay, so you might have, have you heard of maximal oxygen uptake? Aerobic capacity? Okay, so your aerobic capacity is a measure of how fast you can use oxygen. The more, the faster you can use oxygen, the better you'll be as a distance runner. So the top uh, Tour de France cyclists can use oxygen at a rate of about 100 mils per kilogram per minute. They're the best athletes in the world at using oxygen. The faster you use oxygen, the more heat you produce. What do you think an average pony can use oxygen at? If, if, if a top Tour de France cyclist is 100, what do we think a pony is? Just any, these are quite nice ponies, but like any, any pony you see inside of the field is probably 100, 110, 120. So your average pony is better than the best human athlete. If we talk about the best, if we talk about event horses at the Olympic level, they'll be about 160. If we talk about the best race horses, I've got so far the record for measuring the highest one, which is about 250. So, horses are big, they struggle to get rid of heat, they produce a lot of heat, and they rely on sweating. So when it comes to hot and humid environments, the horse is actually at a big disadvantage. So, as if we go back to Barcelona, there were a lot of problems with horses. There was a lot of talk about horses sport not being allowed at the Atlanta Olympic Games. So we had this project to try and work out how we should do it. And this involved a lot of different things. What's the first thing you have to do if you're going to compete from here to Atlanta? Got to get there. So flying horses, <laughs> flying horses is very, very expensive. Um, normal crates, it used to be in the old days, you'd lead the horse onto the plane and they would build the stall that the horse was going to stand in for the flight around the horse. Nowadays, pretty much all commercial flights for horses are done inside cargo containers, which have partitions inside. They're normally three horses to a container. When you transport valuable horses, you normally want to take out one of the compartments and make it a two compartment container. Otherwise, because the horses are standing so cramped for long periods of time, they get muscle problems. So that makes it 50% more expensive because you're taking out one of the partitions. Horses actually travel in, in airplanes very well. In fact, if you said to me, would you rather your horse went on a five hour road journey or five hours on a plane, I'd say I'd take the five hours on a plane because per hour they travel much better unless, of course, there's turbulence. Um, have any of you ever flown on a flight that's had horses on? Nobody have been on a combi flight? You might not have known, actually, you were on a combi flight. There are, there's not so many of them around now, but there used to be planes quite a lot that would have people in the front and they'd have horses in the back. So the plane would be split in half and you wouldn't know, actually, that there were horses in the back part of the plane. <clears throat> The only way you'd know you're on a combi flight 
is you think something was going wrong when you took off because normal flights will go as soon as they hit the, the takeoff speed pretty much they're up in the air when it's with horses they accelerate much more slowly and they use almost the full end of the, the length of the runway so if people aren't aware they're sitting there looking out the window and thinking oh my god why haven't we why, haven't we, why aren't we in the air yet <laughs> the other thing you'll notice is when you come in you'll seem to be get, uh, slowing down for ages and ages so the pilots are actually really good at flying they offer, they also will take more detours around bad weather so we can fly horses quite well one of the problems we do get with horses is what is the normal and i'm nobody on the end someone on this end what is the normal position for what do horses spend most of their time doing okay if that's how the horse has evolved over hundreds of thousands of years what do you th do you think it's good for them when we make them stand with their head up no because what happens is all the time they're down their main airway the trachea there's mucus um, dead which is dead cells viruses bacteria bits of pollen dust all these things that they've inhaled have been cleared and are being cleared down the airways by gravity and also if they get dehydrated which they can do on flights the mucus instead of clearing quickly it slows down yet yeah, so that's one of the big problems we have with transporting horses long distances generally it's about around 12 hours 10 to 12 hours and beyond we start to get an increase in number of horses with temperatures and low-grade pneumonia so that's one of the first things we often have to manage when we get horses to a competition we have to determine whether they are sick if there's if we think they have some infectious disease we have to then make a, a tests make decisions on whether it's likely to be something serious like influenza which could stop the whole competition or whether that it's just something uh, for example there's a thing called equine herpes virus that's uh, that's caused havoc with a couple of major competitions in Europe over the past year because it's highly infectious um, and you have one horse that comes in that's incubating the virus and then of course it very rapidly spreads around. So first thing is getting them there which say isn't cheap. The second thing is what sort of stabling are we going to be required to provide for them and there's now been two times where we have provided air-conditioned, fully air-conditioned stables. Again, you can imagine the cost of air-conditioning stables for horses. So the first time we did this was in Beijing for the, well, not in Beijing, it was in Hong Kong actually, for the 2008 Beijing Olympic Games. Uh, we provided uh, stabling that was fully air-conditioned and we did it again in Tokyo this year. Now, air-conditioned stables are what we know is that horses recover much more quickly if they go straight into air conditioning and don't have to experience the, the climate straight away. The next thing we have to decide is whether we're going to provide air conditioned training facilities or not. Now that's indoor training facilities fully air conditioned. So we've only done that once and that was uh, in Hong Kong in 2008. Uh, we converted a sports hall into an indoor training arena uh, a massive great sport hall i'd probably say four times the size of that covered area at least um, now in tokyo we didn't provide air condition but we did provide a, cl a climate controlled um, indoor arena which was had natural ventilation um, had specific materials on the roof to uh, to try and reflect as much solar radiation as possible and it was a lot cooler in there. There was actually another reason we had to provide that in Tokyo. Did any of you watch any of the Olympics? Did any of you hear commentators talking about lightning and thunderstorms? So during one of the competitions, I think it was the dressage, um, they get a lot of uh, thunderstorms in Tokyo in 
the, the time around the Olympics in July and August. So we had to have contingency to evacuate all horses that were outside to inside within under a couple of minutes. Um, and so that was another reason for having this huge indoor arena that was climate controlled. The other thing we have to think about is education. So everyone thinks that at the Olympics you've got the, the best riders in the world. Actually, you've got the best riders from each country who have qualified. So we have countries competing in the Olympics who aren't at the standard of, say, GB, Germany, France, America. So generally, the level of competition at an Olympic Games, if you think of badminton and Burley as being five-star events, then the Olympics is probably a four, maybe a three and a half. Um, now, if it's very hot, you have to even drop it down a little bit more because even if we get horses used to the heat before they compete in the Olympics, they still can't do as much in the heat as they would be able to do in much cooler conditions. So we have to adjust the competition to make sure that we're not overstressing the horses. And again, that's a major part of how we try and plan this. One of the other things we do, which is really probably the best way we've got of managing heat is to try and avoid it. So if you did watch any of the Olympics in Tokyo, you would see that we, where possible, we ran the competitions in the evening. So we wait until the sun's gone down uh, and then wait another sort of half an hour and then we run the competition in the evening and that makes a massive difference. So for the event horses, we run their competitions during the day because they've got to compete in the cross country in daylight. But for the dressage, for the show jumping, for the para Olympics, we run the competitions in the evening. So as I say, the, the most simplest approach to managing heat is to avoid it. Now, if you can't avoid it, we use what's called acclimatization. And acclimatization means getting used to something. So in terms of heat acclimatization, that would mean training your horse in the heat for two or three weeks before you actually go to a hot country to compete. Now, it's not, acclimatization is really interesting because we've just had a sudden increase in heat. If you've been training your pony in the early morning or the evening and you've got to go to a competition in the middle of the day when it's really hot, your pony's not going to be used to the heat. So you're at a disadvantage. But you could easily improve your chances by training in the heat for a couple of weeks. Um, you, you just, in order to get used to heat, you just need to get hotter than you would normally get. So the same would apply to you as well. We've had competitions in the past where the horses have been absolutely fine. and We've had riders fainting and having to go off to hospital because of heat stroke. So, okay. What do you think the best way, if a horse has got really hot, or a person, how would you know that they're hot? Let's start with horses. How would you know a horse is really hot? Go on. Sweat. Perfect. That's number one. So if the horse is covered in sweat, you can guarantee it could be that it's in pain. Horses will sweat when they're in pain. But <laughs> if you've just ridden it around a cross-country course and it's covered in sweat, it's probably very hot. What else? How old else would we know? Yeah. Veins are standing up. That's very true. You can see veins standing up on the skin. Uh, very prominent. Yep. That's another really good sign that they're hot. Anything else? Breathing. breathing. So deep labored breathing, what we call labored breathing, when they you can see the nostrils flaring and they're, we would say, what's the term you would use for that? Blowing? Is that a term you know? So when they're blowing, that is because they're hot. Uh, what other ways would we know that they're very, very hot? Yep. Their eyes. Congested mucous membranes, yeah. What else? Yep. Sorry? Foaming. Foaming's interesting because the foam comes from the sweat and the foaming comes because of a protein called latherin, 
which is, we say, you know, we call it lather. And when they discovered what the protein was, they named it latherin. What, do you know what latherin does? So latherin is what's called a surfactant. And latherin makes the sweat spread out along the hairs because the more surface area you've got of sweat, the, the greater the cooling. So, yeah, that would go. There was one more. Uh, yeah? They can do. They, if they are very, very hot, they will often be ataxic, especially ataxic, wobbly on the feet. That will, you'll often see that when they've been exercising and you stop them suddenly and they start to go like this. The, the thing to do with that is to keep them walking. The reason they become wobbly on their feet is because when they're uh, hot and exercise, the muscles, there's still a lot of blood flow going through the muscles. But when they stop, they don't need that blood flow to the muscles and it all goes to, not all, it's an exaggeration, a large amount of the blood flow suddenly goes to the skin. And what happens, what would happen? Any ideas? No. So what, what happens if suddenly a lot of your blood flow changes from one place to another? is that your blood pressure drops like this and you faint. So the horses are essentially almost on the point of fainting, fainting when they start to become ataxic. There's one, one other that nobody's really said. If you put your hand on them, they're really, really hot. <laughs> Maybe that's the most basic one. Um, and of course we can take their temperature. They, horses are really, really resistant to heat now, do you know if your body temperature was 40 degrees centigrade, what sort of state do you think you'd be in? Do you think you'd be sitting at home watching, hang on, uh, Snapchat, no, TikTok? No? Do you think you'd be chatting on the phone? Do you think you might be a little bit, not really know what you're doing, throwing up? because that's what would probably be happening if you got to over 40. If you stay over 40 for too long, it's really not very good and you're looking at irreversible uh, brain damage. So heat stroke is one of the most nasty things that you can have. Um, it can happen very quickly and it can be seriously sort of uh, life-changing effects. Horses, on the other hand, get to 40 quite often and they can get up to 42, 42 and a half. Provided you cool them down afterwards quite quickly, they're absolutely fine. So horses are actually much more tolerant of heat than we are. Okay, so we, we're standing at the end of a cross-country course and we've ridden our horse, our pony round, we've jumped off, we've touched it, and we've said, oh my God, it's really hot. And he's blowing really hard and he's a bit wobbly on his feet and he's covered in sweat. What are we gonna do? Okay, we're going to put water on. But doesn't putting water on horses give them heart attacks? No, it doesn't. I'm, I'm being a bit mean. That's, that's, the, uh, that's the thing that comes up every year is that um, people who don't know and people who haven't done this start to talk about you mustn't put cold water on a person or an animal or a horse or a sheep or a cow that is very hot because you'll give them a heart attack. If we've been doing this at the Olympic Games and major competitions and in professional endurance for 40 years and I've not seen a single horse that's died of a heart attack. Um, what happens is sometimes animals or people are cooled aggressively and they die and what you will normally find the pathologist will tell you or the vet will tell you, is that they didn't die because of the cold water being put on, they died because they weren't cooled aggressively enough early enough. So, for example, if you have a dog, if a dog becomes comatose due to heat, it's 37 times more likely to die than if it has heat stroke and is still, uh, is still not, is uncomatose. So, say so heat stroke's a really horrible thing. Um, Cold water, when we talk about cold water, for dogs we're talking about, and people, we're talking about 10 to 15 degrees. Uh, that's pretty cold. If 
you get plunged in water that's 10 to 15 degrees, that's, that's quite cold. Um, for horses, we're normally talking about water that's around five degrees to, to freezing, just because there's so much more heat in a horse than there is, uh, you know, if we say, if we say the horse is seven times bigger uh, and it's produced probably three times as much heat, you know, that's 21 times more heat than we would have in ourselves after exercise. So they are phenomenal. We can help them uh, to deal with the heat, but we can't totally take into account the heat. We still have to usually reduce the competition in some way. And that usually means that we shorten the distance. So for example, in Tokyo, you would have seen the course was, uh, I think, seven and a half minutes compared to probably something like Burley or Badminton were up at 11 or 12 minutes. And even so, the horses finished after that the same as if they'd done 12 minutes at Badminton. So what we try to do is to have them finishing in the same state as they would have done on a full course in a normal climate. That's what, so we're trying to make it as fair as possible to everyone. We're trying to still have the same intensity of competition but we're trying not to kill anyone or kill anything. And at the Tokyo Olympics, in fact, we haven't had any heat related illness in horses uh, since 1992 at Olympic Games. So we've got, we got close once, um, but we've, we've managed to avoid any serious heat illness. So we know it does work. Um, we know what we're doing and I love social media when people try to educate me and tell me I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> so, um, I, I, yeah, it's the joys of social media. Um. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So... Yeah, I, I feel very privileged because I've been, you know, I've spent a lot of time around professional riders um, at Olympic Games. It's incredibly pressured. That uh, there is a huge amount of anxiety about what's going to happen. Uh, every time there's an accident, someone will say, "Well, that's due to the heat," or "That's," you know, the people will say it's it's lack of preparation. We did lose one horse in Tokyo. The horse jumped a fence, the horse was going perfectly well, and the horse just stumbled. The ground was perfectly even, there was no reason for the horse to stumble, there was no pre-existing injury, but it was a catastrophic injury and the horse had to be put down. So even when we do everything we can, sometimes it unfortunately, you know, it's a risk and, and there are going to be accidents. Um, so apart from that, my other life is around trying to uh, improve welfare of all horses. So I'm president of the National Equine Welfare Council at the moment, and that brings together all the different stakeholders in equestrian. So RSPCA, uh, the vets, the charities, and we're trying to target what we think are the biggest welfare issues. Um, at the moment, I would say obesity, is still one of our biggest problems. Um, trotting on roads, uh, horses being driven on the roads, raced on the roads is a bit of a problem still. Um, but I would say obesity, and I would say increasingly the attitude of, of many 
motorists and motorcyclists to, uh, to horse riders. Um, if you do ride on the roads and you have problems, get a head cam because we have increasing evidence that even if you buy a, a, a hat cam, head cam off of eBay that's sold for parts and it's only five pounds, even if it's not working, it seems to change other road users' behaviours. Just the fact that they see that you've got a head cam on doesn't have to be working. <laughs> um, so yeah, there are some problems. And then my other role is working for the British teams. And that's very different because that's looking at anything that we can do to give British riders an edge in competition. Um, so that could be anything from one of our projects at the moment is all the riders that show jump for Team GB, every time they jump a fence, that fence is it's analysed and put into a database. And we analyse the data over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rounds, thousands of fences jumped. And we look for patterns and then we talk to the coaches and then with the vets and physios and we try to understand why those faults are occurring. Because there's so much data, the riders come out with an impression, say, oh, my horse doesn't like red and white poles. And it's not red and white poles, it's only red and white poles when the previous fence was a double and it's going towards the collecting ring. That's what we can do with huge amounts of data. So then we can talk to the rider and say, look, this is, you do this with all your horses, this is a psychological problem. Get the sports psychologist involved to try and help the rider understand what's going on and come up with techniques to manage that sort of problem. Um, other things that we're doing is, is looking at AI-based apps on the phone where we can, even though we're not with the horses, we can get the rider to trot the horse up and we can instantly see it analyzes and shows us the degree of lameness in the horse and we can track that over time. Uh, oh, I spent a day at Bramham. Anyone Bramham horse trials? Uh, weekend before last, again working with all our senior riders, looking at some new technology that we're looking into to introduce to give a performance advantage. We've been analysing the weather and the course for Paris, um, but I've also been doing that for the FEI as well, um, because unfortunately we could be getting a heat wave in Paris <laughs> next year. Um, so yes, yeah, so I have a fun life. Um, <laughs> I do lots of stuff. I probably should sleep more, but uh, let me ask you, how many of you want to have a career in horses, all you girls? And how many of you parents want them to have a career in horses? <laughs> do you know, if you do the right thing, you know, you should, should, it's a tough world, but there's no, it doesn't matter what you go into. If you want to be the best, it's going to be hard. It's going to be really, really hard. You have to be 100% committed. You'll miss out on other things. But, you know, if that's what you want, you probably, if you're, should we say, um, <laughs> if you're focused enough and, and strong enough, then you've probably got a chance of, you know, getting somewhere, but it is hard work. Um, but getting to the top of anything is very rewarding. I think I've talked enough. I should stop talking and I'm happy to answer any questions. Yeah, lycra for horses. I wish I'd thought of it. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I can't say much more than no. I, get, I struggle with this one. It's, it's a great marketing idea, but there's no proper research on... Compression works in, in people for certain things. We know compression for DVT. Um, but you need to know what degree of compression you need to apply. Yeah, but they, they're, they're not, they're just lycra. Um, and it's the same compression over the whole surface, which can't be right. Um, I, I don't believe that, I haven't seen any good evidence that they work. I think they're a little bit of a gimmick. 
they keep the horses clean apparently yeah. if you've got a gray then a light commander <laughs> it take it take you probably an hour and a half to get it on you'd probably be better off just letting the horse get dirty and washing it afterwards um the question i had was uh the world equestrian games in the states the last one try on there was a noticeable difference on the cross country with the brits horses and the brits riders than any other nation now there are other nations doing research. Um, it was a very hilly course. Yeah. What do you think accounted for their amazing cross country performance? <laughs> You're going to say that. But... <laughs> well, uh, so I don't know. Uh, any of you have any um, watched the World Equestrian Games 2018 in Tryon, North Carolina? Are any of you aware of it? Um, so the World Equestrian Games, that was the last one where essentially the World Equestrian Games is where all the FEI sports are present. So that's endurance, it's reining, it's para, it's, it's, it's eventing, all the disciplines are there. Unfortunately, the people running the venue for the last one made such a hash of it, there'll probably never be another World Equestrian Games where all of the disciplines are together. <clears throat> Also because the FEI's kicked out raining for bad behaviour. Um, what was interesting about Tryon, so North Carolina, how, anyone fancy North Carolina in, in August? <laughs> no, no, it's horrible. It's, it's just disgusting. Um, it's incredibly hot and humid. So <clears throat> that was when the World Equestrian Games would normally be run. It was moved back a month because I was asked to do an analysis of historic records and do some measurements out there and it, we decided that September was significantly better. Um, it, was still, uh, it was still quite hot and I think the Brits, the Brits do have an inside track and can ask questions to me and I think they did prepare, they did get their horses used to the heat before going out there. I think a lot of the other countries misunderstood and thought because it had been moved from August to September it was absolutely fine, it wasn't going to be hot. But it was still going to be hot, just as not as hot as in August. So I think they were just, you know, really well prepared for the fact it was going to be hot. And of course, the endurance managed to. Um, I gave a briefing to the endurance riders before the day before the endurance race, and I said, "Don't underestimate this course. It's very twisty. It's very hilly. If it rains, which it probably will, it's going to get soft." All of those things make it harder for the horses. It's going to be hot. I said, you need to, and I had all these, had this lovely slide with all these red flags. And they all went off like 100 mile an hour and it rained and then the sun came out. And in endurance, you have uh, what are called vet gates. So every sort of 20, 30 kilometers, the horses have to be inspected and have criteria to pass through the vets before they're allowed to have, have a rest and then they go on to the next stage. And we had, I think, 26 horses presented and one horse passed the veterinary inspection within about a half an hour period. And that's never, ever happened before anywhere in the world in the history of endurance. So we made the call to stop the competition. It descended into a little bit of a, there was people punching one another and there was state troopers were called and I was all quite excited. Um, but it was that, that is where riders, athletes have a responsibility. It's, you know, you have to decide what's reasonable to do with your horse. You have a responsibility to look after your horse. Even if you really, 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 really want to win, you have to look after your horse. And the endurance riders didn't and they paid the price for it. Yes. I love that question. So if, just in case you didn't hear, a lady was asking, is there a particular area of the horse that you should pour water over to get it cool? Now there's lots of stuff goes around still on social media. Even some doctors you will hear saying you should put ice packs under the arms or in the groin. The, what we're trying to do is to cool the blood. Your skin, is full of blood. That's where 
a huge amount of your blood flow is, is in your skin. So actually you don't want to concentrate on any particular area. You want to cover as much of the surface as you can as possible. But that's a, that idea about cooling specific areas is a, is, is a myth that's still out there that we, we fight every summer. And they don't put any, they, they just put one bucket on and it's, um, well, the, the latest research is that you should, if, if the horse is, if the horse is not particularly hot, you can scrape it off. But if the horse is very hot, you just keep applying water because the, the cold water displaces any warm water that's on there. So in fact, you can cold if you've got a hose and you're hosing with 15 degrees water all over that's just as quick as, as sort of putting on ice water continuous hosing yeah so um so the question was about giving a sort of recovery mash what is another myth is that you shouldn't allow a horse to drink while it's still blowing. Um, again, if you watch professional endurance out in the desert, as the rider comes in, the rider jumps off, there's somebody there with a bucket. Because if you leave it about one or two minutes to offer that horse water, it'll probably drink around 40, 50% less. So they have a really strong thirst when they finish. And because of the way their airway and their mouth is, they're able to drink and breathe at the same time. They're very, very good at it. Um, so things like anything that gets them to drink is good uh, and will speed their recovery. Um, also, it's important getting feed into them. So washing them down really quickly and getting a feed into them, again, helps if it's particularly if they're at a multi-day event, helps them to recover. So yeah, recovery mash, um, electrolytes, um, whether it's in water uh, or just in feed. Um, yep, electrolytes, water, and energy. Yes. Um, like, um, does it? Well, does it matter how much they drink? Like, I thought it was that they can't drink like loads. Okay, so. That's a really good question because, again, that's another myth that goes round is that you should restrict water. So in this weather, you can allow your horse or pony to have water right up until the time you're going to pull them out and get on to warm up. And after you've done 15, 20 minutes of warm up, you can let them have another drink if they want to. It does no problem for them at all. You don't need to restrict or, or people say you should restrict water because the horse has got a very small stomach. It's actually not that, that small, but it's, it, for the horse's size, its stomach is quite small. People say, oh, but if you let the horse drink as much as it wants, the stomach's going to distend and then it's going to be painful for the horse and the horse is going to get colic. Actually, there are a number of things that cause the stomach to... The stomach's obviously got a valve at the top and you know, or do you know, that horses can't be sick? Yeah? Okay. So the water goes in it can't come back out. So it's only got one place to go. That's out of the other side of the stomach. So there's a number of things that make the stomach empty. One of them is actually, one of the major ones is distension. So if your horse does drink more water than the stomach can hold, all that happens is that valve at the bottom opens earlier and lets it out. So the horse, it, you, the horse can't rupture its stomach from drinking too much water. One of the other things that makes the valve open is cold water. Um, so <laughs> lots of cold water. Generally, you don't want to do that because when they're hot, there is a, there is a problem they could get called ileus, which isn't the stomach, but it's the small intestine. But generally that happens with uh, endurance horses, horses that have been very dehydrated and very hot for a long time. So generally not a problem. To, any of you do endurance? No. Yeah. So yeah, have a think about hunting. So 
you're out hunting in the middle of the winter, you've been galloping around for 20 minutes, and your horse is really hot and blowing, and you come to a cold stream, what do you do? Let your horse drink. And we've been doing it for hundreds of years, and they, if, if horses drop dead from having cold water out of streams and ponds when they're out hunting, we would have stopped doing it by now, but we don't, or at least I don't. Okay, you're welcome, it's a good question. Because it is, it is, it's a very common myth that you should restrict them because it can cause their stomach to, to burst. And honestly, you know, no, there's, there's no questions too basic. I, I know everyone has different experiences in horses, so don't hold back just because it's not all about elite horses. <laughs> yes? Oh, what would I recommend if your horse doesn't drink when out of shows? That is a really common problem. Okay, first thing I'd do is take water from home. So you would, is that you, you'd take your own water, not rely on the water that's at the show, because a lot of horses don't like the change in taste. Um, you can put things in like thirst quencher, which are these sachets that have got all sorts of... Uh, sort of grains and stuff in that you put in and mix it around and it looks like horrible slop but the horses love it. Um, you don't need to worry too much unless they're, uh, you know, it, unless they're showing signs of dehydration which would be, you know, they've stopped sweating um, or the other mucous membranes are really, really dark. Um, or they're sort of, you know, look like they're a bit depressed and unhappy. So, is this, do you have a, do you have a horse or pony that doesn't drink? Yeah. And you go to a show and he won't drink all day. Is he quite excited looking around at everything? Yeah. I wouldn't worry too much. As long as you make sure he's got water um, at home all the time and don't take it away and let him have water, uh, you can try taking uh, if you feed him hay, yeah. so soak in some hay for him, that will get some water into him. But if you had a problem like, if you started getting things like impaction colic, which is a type of colic where the food, you get sort of dry lumps of food that get stuck in the hindgut, um, then that's something we, you'd really have to look at how you were going to manage that because if you, I'm sure you're not getting impaction colic, are you? No, so I wouldn't worry. It's the ones that get this impaction colic that we really have to try and sort of make sure they do drink. But yeah, you know the saying, don't you? You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Generally, they're quite, they're quite sensible. They will, they will drink if they need to. Yes. Ah, it's a great question. I love that question. Um, so the question was, how would you change your warm-up? This is one of the, don't tell any of the other nations, <laughs> but this is one of the things that makes a massive difference. If you normally, okay, let's start with warm-up in general. Lots and lots of riders I work with ride their best dressage test in the warm-up arena and not in the, when they're supposed to. Most people warm up too much. The warm-up usually is psychological for the rider, not for the horse. So what we see is that the horse gets to a point where it's actually stable, probably within 15, 20 minutes. Many riders go on a lot longer than that. Um, so if it's hot, we'd look at reducing the warm-up time or splitting the warm-up into two or three sessions, cooling the horse off, letting it drink, get back on uh, and again that's what you would have seen a lot of riders doing at the Olympics uh, would be changing their warm-up routine and it, 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 it does work very well it takes sometimes it takes a little bit of convincing to get the riders to try it because you know riders very much get into well flow what do riders do do you do you always do the same thing wear the same boots eat the same thing you know <laughs> all the superstition that goes with preparing yeah 
So um, it can be quite hard to get riders to change, but it, it, it does work. Um, so yeah, it, it, very simple really. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So if you if you had a delay to your start time, uh, as soon as you know that there's going to be delay, you would stop warming up. Um, if uh, this is where you have to get your parents or somebody with you to use a bit of management, because they if there's been a delay, they can't come up to you and say, right, you're going now. You can. You, you can quite rightly refuse to go and say, I'm sorry, I haven't had any warning that you're restarting. I need three or four minutes to warm up. Um, depend, you know, you need to keep an eye on what's going on. You can, uh, you'd start off by walking round. If it looks like it's going to be a really long delay, get off, cool your horse down, get back on and walk. Uh, you know, so it's about being smart and watching what's going on and trying to get as much information as you can. But don't let people force you into... So, you know, saying, right, you're going now. And say, sorry, I haven't had any warning that you're restarting. It's, um, you'll usually get away with that. <laughs> Not always. <laughs> and in the really hot, like, events, do you ever have any trouble if people are, like, held on the prospect? That's a great question. So, at the Olympic Games, uh, what we've done, and, and also WEG, we will put out stops on the course where there is water to cool horses down if there are holds, uh, shade as well, uh, also vet teams out, so mobile vet teams so that if uh, you know horses are held on course they can be looked after. Um, that's probably the worst thing for, as a rider, you know, to be stopped halfway around a, a, a competition. It's, um, yeah, not a nice one. Yes? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. The question was, what can you do when you're not on the horse? Um, most, how many of you are right-handed? <laughs> okay. And which rein does your, do your horses go best on, do you think? Left or right? Right? <laughs> so, most riders, if you ask them, you go and say, can you go and do a warm-up? And you say to them, how much time do you think you spent on the left and how much do you think you spent on the right? And they'll go, oh, 50-50. And you go, no, it's 60-40. Because you tend to ride more on your strongest side. So one of the things you can do is making sure that you do some work off the horse to, in the gym, just strengthening exercise and proprioception exercise to make sure you're, you've got good posture and good core strength. Um, if you get tired, when you're riding, that's going to transmit immediately to your horse. Uh, Flo and I were talking earlier on today that one of the, the things that riders do they often don't realise is they start they slightly tilt their head when they're looking at things like a jump and if you tilt that changes your weight in your seat bones immediately. Um, sometimes you end up sitting more to one side because you're a little bit tired on this side or a little bit tired on that side. So making sure you are fit um, is really important for you know riding, not just like performing well, but riding safely as well. Um, you're much more likely to be able to sit if your horse does something unexpected, if you're strong and balanced, not tired. That was a great question. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and the Stable Science series. If you want to learn more about this topic and our work, head over to the drdavidmarlin.com website. Our website and community of members discuss a wide breadth of topics and the website houses thousands of articles, webinars, videos and research, all designed to help horse owners, riders, trainers and breeders achieve optimal performance for their much-loved horses. The drdavidmarlin.com site is an independent information resource for all equestrians, a source of unbiased, science-based research. To learn more about what we do and the hot topics under discussion, follow us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.